0: and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, where we keep you up to date on the latest science, art, history, and basically everything cool that happened around the world this past week. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link.
1: First First link. link.
2: All right, the weather is starting to change-ish here in Austin. We are officially entering the eating season. You know what I'm talking about, (laughs) the holidays, Thanksgiving, whatever holidays you celebrate. Regardless, since we're going to be looking at a lot of food in the coming days, I submit for your consideration from space.com a new product. Heinz has debuted their Mars Edition Ketchup, made with tomatoes grown in Mars conditions. (laughs) so the packaging is pretty neat it's just a regular bottle with a fancy label but it comes in this like cool ziploc freeze-dried pouch the kind that you would get like you know astronaut ice cream in or whatever Mm -hmm. heinz announced this mars edition ketchup and i pronounce it that way because mars is with a z naturally and oh no (laughs) no i I was on board but now i am not I... (laughs) (laughs) i i understand your hesitancy but This is kind of a cool project. So they made this ketchup from the same premium quality tomatoes as used in its popular Earth-based edition. (laughs) But here's the twist. They grew these tomatoes in the same harsh conditions as found on Mars. And it's essentially the product of two years of research conducted by a team of astrobiologists at the Florida Institute of Technology's Aldrin Space Institute. It's not available for purchase yet. A batch was unveiled at the Heinz headquarters in Pittsburgh, where the experimental sauce passed the company's quality test to be approved to become certified bottles of Heinz tomato Mm. ketchup. It's a process, y'all. So the (laughs) 14-member team at the Algern Space Institute, led by one Dr. Andrew Palmer, they grew the plants, the tomato plants, in Martian simulant, which is an Earth-based soil that's been chemically matched to the red planet's regolith. They use the same temperature and water conditions as found on Mars. And this research is actually one of the largest projects of its kind related to Mars. If tomatoes can be grown off-planet, they can also be grown in more remote and harsh places on Earth. And so, you know, eventually we might look at Agricultural practices in more arid or desolate regions. So basically, you know, when the apocalypse hits, we still get you ketchup. (laughs) (laughs) At least there will be ketchup. That's good. Exactly. Exactly. My favorite quote here was. With regards to our own survival on this planet, if you are looking for a Mad Max Martian ketchup, this is the thing to do. I'm hoping that they later come out with things like Total Recall Relish or <laughs> Clockwork Mustard. I
0: was I was thinking about it. Like if I tell myself that the Z in Mars is because of Heinz
2: with a z yes that's that's what i'm gonna decide that's what it is it's not that it's like red uh, yeah it's, and it's you know in they have a little sizzle reel that is in the collectspace.com <laughs> and it has a little bit of information and they do refer to mars edition in regular s so oh good the adoption of this faux kitschy mars with a z is not consistent across their marketing let's go ahead and assume that was intentional yeah yeah for sure <laughs> <laughs> next link
1: next, next link. link this article comes to us from WelcomeCollection.org, and it's titled dueling doctors hmm. Although doctors and surgeons are usually associated with healing and the ethics of the Hippocratic Oath, the history of dueling, especially with pistols, provides fascinating instances of their involvement in organized combat. Oh Wait, my. you
2: <laughs> meant literal dueling, not like House MD has a case that he is sparring verbally with someone. Uh-huh, yep. Okay, right, i Yeah.
1: with I meant with you now. two people, sometimes doctors, shooting <laughs> each other with guns.
2: <laughs> you know, you get to a certain level of education and expertise and sometimes you still resort to violence to solve things. Yeah, I
1: mean, we know that that data is hard to back up, and sometimes you just got to shoot a guy. That's right, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) Don't do that, that's not a recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) According to the rules of honor, a gentleman was obliged to address any stain actual or imagined in his name. In the British Code of Duel, 1824, a gentleman who evaded a justifiable call would put himself without the pale of honor, resulting in his expulsion from honorable society. Mm. In military circles, the penalty was harsher still. Failure to uphold one's honor or that of the regiment could result in a court martial and the removal of an officer's commission.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you don't shoot this guy who's insulted you, we're going to fire you. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow.
1: In 1719, doctors John Woodward and Richard Mead famously fought with swords outside the gates of Gresham College, London, over a medical dispute. So, you know, like, it's not like they went to a forest. They, like, fought outside of a college with swords.
0: (laughs) Okay, but if they're injured, they can go right inside and get treated. Like, that to me seems practical.
1: Yeah, Yeah. that that is true. And according (laughs) to popular reports in this duel, at one point, Woodward slipped and fell to Meade's mercy. And when asked to beg for his life, Woodward allegedly replied, anything but your physic, which is basically a burn to say, sure, just don't treat me. <laughs> you <suck> at this. <laughs> so Woodward and Mead were by no means the only doctors to try to kill one another. In fact, young medical practitioners became so well known for their dueling exploits that the times represented the typical duelist as a medical student in a satirical (laughs) piece in 1829. Wow. Reluctant duelists could demonstrate their courage while not actually participating in violence by refusing to pull the trigger or deliberately aiming wide. One doctor who may have adopted this tactic was Peter Hennis, who was fatally wounded in a duel against John Jeffcott, the Chief Justice of Sierra Leone outside Exeter in May 1833. According to a report in Truman's Exeter Flying Post, Hennis had always made up his mind if he was obliged to go out on an affair of that kind, that he would never fire at his opponent. But it's also interesting to kind of reflect in the historical aspects of war in that, you know, we know that most soldiers prior to modern training that essentially brainwashes you into killing people Mm -hmm. uh, that most soldiers literally would just drop their guns and not fire fire in the wrong directions and Mm -hmm. otherwise flee because, you know, the default human state is to not want to kill people, right? So, without formalized codes of honor, there was little to distinguish a duel from murder. Uh Uh-huh. For centuries, sword fighters had produced various codes that prescribed the rules for combat. The content of these guides differed across location and time, and when pistols replaced swords, a new body of literature arose that was equally numerous and contradictory. (laughs) However, the new codes did agree on one thing, duels should have a medical attendant.
0: Yeah, (laughs) they've already got two.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The British Code of Duel says, it is expedient that a surgeon should attend each of the parties whenever possible. A gentleman should be selected who has had some practice in gunshot wounds. Gunshot (laughs) wounds were usually the product of war and so lay beyond the experience of many practitioners. Nevertheless, an attending surgeon summoned by one party was expected to act impartially and come to the aid of the injured, even if they were from the opposing party.
2: Would that have interrupted someone's honor? Like, if the whole point of you upholding your honor is to kill someone, but then the surgeon saves that person's life...
1: Then you have to kill the surgeon. That's that's the rule. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know. I mean, it really does feel like... It is about the threat of mortal wounding Mm -hmm. rather than that they really want that to happen necessarily. But, you know, clearly both things happen quite a bit. But also, given that dueling was illegal, the codes advised surgeons against getting too involved in the dispute itself. The British Code of Duel recommended surgeons remain out of sight, though at but a small distance, till called upon by the seconds, thus reducing the likelihood of being prosecuted as an accessory to murder. So...
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is Hamilton. You have him turn around so he can have deniability. You, you can't yeah. have the doctor watch what's happening, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in the Art of Dueling, 1836, the anonymous writer specified that medical attendants should bring all the necessary apparatus for tying up wounds or arteries and extracting balls or bullets. Mm. If a wounded duelist survived the initial injury caused by the ball entering the body, they were still vulnerable to infection, and that was particularly the case if the ball carried a piece of clothing or wadding into the body when it entered. Hmm. And although the height of the dueling craze predated bacterial explanations of infection, experienced military surgeons still recognized the risk of contaminated wounds. The author of The Art of Dueling also noted that flannel underwear should be avoided during a duel because wounds, comparatively trifling, have often become dangerous from parts of the flannel clothing being carried into them, particularly in warm climates. So So
0: they're now giving you instructions on what kind of underwear
2: to wear to your duel. Like, exactly. I am amazed at how laborious the mental and ethical gymnastics of Mm -hmm. what is a better or worse way to kill someone. But with honor, with honor. Yeah.
1: Now this makes me want to look up when was the Hippocratic Oath invented. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Pretty sure Hippocrates
1: was super old. Yeah, yeah.
2: Ancient Greece would have been my first guess. Yeah, I guess they didn't
1: really uh, think about it. That's right. Uh, they weren't
2: really signed on to that guy until later. Yeah, they were like, yeah. "Guys, the Hippocratic Oath is a living, breathing document that changes <laughs> in the context of our world." Okay, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, next link.
2: link. All right. Well, ironically
0: enough, speaking of bullet holes, this next <laughs> one is kind of a behind the scenes peek at the world of Hollywood special effects. Ooh. It comes from Hackaday.com, and it's called Those Bullet Effects in Terminator 2 Weren't CGI. Oh. So, yeah, I don't know about you guys. Terminator 2 was kind of a milestone film for me growing up. I've probably seen it a dozen times. You know, it came out in 1991. It was a huge deal, specifically for the special effects of, if you haven't seen it, the T-1000, who was like this liquid metal bad guy who could morph into Mm -hmm. anything he wanted. And there definitely was a lot of CGI in it. Terminator 2 was the first use of a personal computer to create major movie 3D effects. It was also the first realistic human movements on a CGI character and the first blockbuster movie to feature multiple morphing effects. But there was one scene in particular that wasn't done with CGI and that was the famous bullet effects where the T-1000 is getting shot and it creates these sort of gloopy metal splash holes Mm. in his body Mm -hmm. that, you know, of course, don't hurt him and he keeps coming. But the way they did this particular effect has recently been revealed in an online post by the Stan Winston School of Character Arts in Hollywood. The school itself is named after, of course, Stan Winston, who was a pioneer in the special effects field and was personally responsible for the physical effects in Terminator 2. So the way they did it was first they had to get a really good idea of what shape these gloopy holes should have. So they spent several weeks firing different projectiles into mud. And then oh. carefully documenting the various crater shapes that they formed. Hmm. Wow. They then made 3D sculptures of the impacts and cast them into a foam material that was compressible but very firm. So it would bounce back <sighs> very quickly to its original shape. So like if you balled it up tightly in your hand, it would disappear. But if you released it, it would almost look like it had just popped into being. Hmm. So then they used a process called vacuum deposition to put an extremely thin coating of metallic particles on each little foam flower shape that they had carved. The process, they said, is similar to electroplating, but electroplating requires the object being coated to have a conductive surface. And somehow the vacuum deposition gets around that that they don't explain how. Then the effects team created a flat fiberglass chest plate with little divots in it and each divot was given a tiny trap door over the top of the hole that was held in place by a single pin. So they would cram these foam pieces into the divot, close the trap door, and then a radio-powered remote control would release the pin on cue, and the silver (laughs) foam would burst through a pre-cut slit in the character's clothes and just sort of pop out onto his chest. And at the time they were developing these, they took a lot of test footage, which they have in the article. And you can see one of Winston's associates Dressed in the little pre-cut police uniform and these metal bullet wounds that look just like they do in the movie are like popping out all over him. Whoa. Unfortunately, Stan Winston passed away in 2008. But there is a book called The Winston Effect, which goes into detail on a lot of his different projects over the years. And I think I'm honestly going to put it on my Christmas list because I think these kind of practical effects are so cool. You know, because it is science. Mm -hmm. They have to understand the physical properties of these different materials and know how to make them look Mm -hmm. like something they're not. But also, it's really cool. It looks like you're
2: shooting an alien dude. (laughs) (laughs) That would make for amazing cosplay potential.
0: Oh, for sure. It seems like all of this stuff is is stuff that you could do at home. Like, I mean, this was the 90s. It wasn't like they had massive technology (laughs) behind this. You could totally... Make your little silver foam flowers and walk through a con and just occasionally be like, oh, and have it pop out on you and be like, oh, I'm shot. I'm a cyborg.
2: (laughs) Of all the special effects as well, I can't believe that's the one that was done practicals. Like I would have thought for sure that was one that was being done with CGI.
0: Yeah. And I actually, because of this article, I went and was like, oh, I want to see those scenes again. I went and looked up all the scenes on YouTube where he gets shot. And actually, Sarah Connor gets shot at one point because it's the T-1000 pretending to be her. But like Mm. watching it, I'm like, they did that so well because it (laughs) looks it looks very cool in the test footage. Like you look at it and it looks better than you thought it would. But then, of course, you go back to the movie and you're like, oh, and like a little editing and lighting. It looks even Mm -hmm. better. So I'm probably going to have to go watch the whole movie again, to be honest. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) For science, you know. Exactly. Yes. For science, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Next link next link link. all right let's stick with this action theme from medium.com we've got a little ditty on the loudest and most devastating recorded sound in history whoa Mm. specifically we're going to talk about two noises that will wreck your world and one is active every day in our world it's produced by a magnificent sea animal that was once brought to the brink of extinction Any guesses?
0: Uh, I feel like almost all of them have been brought to the brink of extinction by us.
2: (laughs) Super fair. All right. Well, specifically, we are talking about sperm whales, but not just Hmm. any sound that they make. We're talking about their clicks. (laughs) It sounds pretty minor, but... By a marvelous act of bioengineering, their body evolved a means of bouncing sound waves through their skull and then magnifying the waves in a way that the military would love to replicate. (laughs) Basically, they've got this flat part on the back of the skull that acts as kind of a satellite dish. The sperm whales will send a sound at the front of the mouth to that flat part. So they're going from the tip of their snoot to the very back of their skull where they've got this satellite dish kind of formation. And they concentrate the sound in a cone that funnels out through a hole above its nose in a clicking sound. So it's kind of this quick backlash, like a whip kind of thing. And so Mm -hmm. this click can go as high as 230 decibels. Wow. If you don't speak fluent sound engineer, Jennifer does, (laughs) a jackhammer (laughs) is 100 decibels. So imagine 2.3 jackhammers. Oh, no, it's way
0: worse than that because decibels are logarithmic like like 40 decibels is not 10 more than 30. It's twice as loud as 30. 230 is like almost unlivable.
2: I can't imagine. I mean, that's what it takes to stun a giant squid if you're a whale. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sounds are vibrating waves that create a vacuum between them. And the louder the sound, the bigger the vacuum and the possibility of an air pocket inside your veins, (laughs) which becomes an air embolism that travels to critical organs. So that's kind of, how you die from sound because your eardrums will (laughs) rupture around 150 decibels Mm -hmm. and you risk having a heart attack and a stroke around 180 decibels. Not only that, in water, the sound waves hit even harder. So (laughs) if a large male sperm whale clicked as loud as he could, it would be like having a car crash inside your lungs Mm -hmm. as the sound is forced to slow down suddenly in your organs. Basically, your meat is slowing down the sound (laughs) wave. And because female sperm whales select for males with the loudest clicks, they've gotten progressively louder over time. But here's the good news. Sperm whales are friendly and curious. If you do swim near them, they will absolutely scan you with their clickers, but they do so at lower intensities to get a three-dimensional view of your body, including your inner organs, because (laughs) what are even whales? A diver named James Nestor actually experienced this and said it was painfully loud, even with their calm clicks. He Mm -hmm. reports feeling his body heating up as the sound waves hit him. Wow. Wow. So that's the sound you can hear today, although we don't necessarily recommend it. Right. (laughs) But the actual loudest sound ever recorded, we're going to go all the way back to 1883, where residents in Perth, Australia, heard a loud explosion that sounded nearby, but nobody could see any smoke. It stemmed from the Krakatoa volcanic eruption in Indonesia over 3,000 miles away. Wow. The sound wave from Krakatoa's eruption traveled the globe seven times over. It was the equivalent of the Earth, like, majorly burping, (laughs) but then also sending 100-foot tsunamis outward, which killed 36,000 people in the region. And those that weren't killed by the tsunami were killed by the poison gas that fell from the sky in the surrounding radius. So, obviously, Krakatoa was a major disaster, but we happened to have seven barographs that were running at the time, one of which registered 172 decibels. 100 miles from the source. Wow. So through calculating Krakatoa's originating sound, they're thinking it was at 310 decibels, which pushes the limits on the possibility of sound. Because it's not actually technically possible to get to 310 because sound waves turn into shock waves at that point. Mm -hmm. But because it was volcanic activity, the Earth itself was helping the sound cheat science because it was shaking the area like a vibrating cell phone. The noise blew out the eardrums of sailors 40 miles away, left mm. many of them deaf, minutes before the tidal waves came. Oh. <laughs> like
0: So like their eardrums are bleeding, they're trying to figure out what's going
2: on yeah. and then the water hits. Look, Krakatoa was not a good time. Yeah, okay, The volcanic explosion was so powerful that the volcano completely wiped itself out. It fell 50 meters below sea level <laughs> as a dent in the earth. I mean, the volcano is still growing today and it just rose back a above the shorelines, growing at about five inches a week <laughs> wow what could possibly go wrong but you know it's typically tens of thousands of years before explosions like this happen. so if you're in our generation maybe that'll buy you a little time at least for this disaster
0: yeah i still don't think i'm gonna go visit krakatoa anytime soon
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah but if you guys ever do get clicked at by a sperm whale uh let me know how it goes yeah I think I'm not going scuba
0: diving either, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you've convinced me the best place to stay is inside my house with my headphones on. Just, you know, like, if nothing else, they will soak up the blood when something comes and bursts my, oh my God. God.
2: <laughs> I, uh Next link. <laughs>
1: next,
2: next link.
1: link. This article comes to us from Universe Today, and it's titled Fungi Were Able to Absorb Radiation on the ISS. Could astronauts grow their own radiation shields in space?
0: Hmm, (laughs) like like a suit of mold.
1: But Yeah, I, I feel like it might be around the space station <laughs> right? Probably. the actual suit, but, you know, who knows? Uh, <laughs> let's, let's find out. <laughs> so, a lack of effective radiation shielding is one of the biggest challenges still to be overcome if humans are to embark on long-term voyages into deep space. Astronauts on the International Space Station, some 408 kilometers above the Earth, receive elevated levels of radiation but are close enough to the Earth that they still receive some shielding and can stay on orbit for up to a year. The same cannot be said for astronauts traveling further out to the moon or someday to Mars. Future deep space voyagers will need to bring their own shielding with them or, as a new paper suggests, grow it along the way. According to the paper published in preprint on BioRXIV earlier this month, a special type of fungi that thrives in high radiation environments called Cladosporium spherospermum could form a living shield around astronauts in space. The fungus not only blocks radiation, but actually uses it to grow through a process called radiosynthesis. It pulls energy from radiation, just as most plants pull energy from sunlight via photosynthesis. One of the pull quotes from the article is, over the period of one year, the average person on Earth is dosed with about 6.2 million SV, which I believe is probably a radiation unit. I don't know what that actually stands for. Uh, (laughs) While the average astronaut on the International Space Station, ISS, is exposed to an equivalent of approximately 144 MSV. Hmm. One year into a three-year mission to Mars, an astronaut would already have accumulated some 400 MSV. So, That's a lot. Yeah, (laughs) relatively speaking, that's a lot. So these radiation-loving fungi survive on earth in extreme places like the site of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine. In 2019, researchers flew some of the fungus to the ISS, watching how it grew over a period of 30 days and measuring the amount of radiation that passed through it as compared to a control sample with no fungi. The experiment showed that radiation levels beneath a 1.7 mm thick bed of fungus were about 2.17% lower than the control. Not only that, but the fungus grew about 21 percent faster than it does on Earth, hmm. meaning that the fungi's ability to act as a protective shield for astronauts could actually grow more robust the longer a mission lasts.
2: Assuming that growth doesn't lead to other interesting avenues right. of growth that may have bacteria exactly. and muscles and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like how they threw it in here. Like, hey, it looks like they grow even faster in space. It, it'll work <laughs> in our benefit. It's fine.
1: Yeah, and there's a small photo of it in a little petri dish, and it's very interesting. It you know it. Looks looks just like moss except it's pretty uniform and it has rings in the middle but then it has these like lines that point inwards It almost kind of looks like a a black hole or something like that, but, you know, moss. Not that you can Mm. look at a black hole, but kind of evokes that imagery. (laughs) An artist's rendition of. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it is too early to get overly excited about the practical applications of this fungus in space travel. The team estimates that on Mars, to bring radiation levels down to Earth-like conditions, a habitat would need to be covered with a 2.3 meter thick layer of radiosynthesizing fungi. The same effect could be achieved by burying the habitat beneath three meters of Martian dirt. Still, the potential for biological solutions to what are often considered engineering challenges is a unique approach and may prove fruitful. Hmm. There's still a lot of work to be done to keep future astronauts safe, but when the time comes, don't be surprised if part of the solution to space radiation involves hiding beneath a thick blanket of friendly fungi.
0: Well, and it's kind of ironic as well that, like, we found this potential solution By having one of the worst nuclear meltdowns in human history, you know, like we made this horrible mistake, but then we got cool fungus out of it that evolved to live in this horrible radioactive (laughs) environment. I'm not saying Chernobyl was a good thing. I'm just saying.
1: (laughs) You're just saying
0: life finds a way. Yeah, it's a silver lining, maybe.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting, too, and if you think kind of about, you know, sci-fi fodder in that there's totally ideas of fungal aliens and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But it's interesting to think, you know, maybe the real manifestation of that is that we actually do just let moss grow all over our spaceships. And that's just part of the radiation protection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. link.
0: All right. This next article comes from CBC Radio and it's called. This man won a Guinness World Record for his tree that bears 10 types of fruit. And I was thinking at first when I read the title that this was some kind of genetic magic, but it turns out it's a little more like Frankenstein. He's using the practice of tree grafting to bond branches from different species into a single living plant, which also kind of feels like cheating to me. Like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, no, this one tree. I'm like, you stitched together a bunch of trees
2: and they haven't died yet. Well, grafting is an ancient agricultural practice, is Mm -hmm. it not?
0: Yeah, it definitely is. The gardener is named Hussam Saraf, and he's an Iraqi immigrant living in Australia. He says that he learned the art of tree grafting from his family back in Iraq, where they farm figs for a living. And he sees tree grafting as a metaphor for multiculturalism. Quote, it's mother nature that's united us all together. Doesn't really matter how different we are in color or culture or tradition. We are one and we can respect each other as one, which is nice. And it's an attitude that is especially suited to his day job, which is as a multicultural officer at a secondary school in Shepparton, Australia. He says he often invites students over to see his sprawling backyard garden experiments. Partly for the multicultural metaphors, but also because he's just super passionate about his hobby and wants to get more teens into tree farming. (laughs) He also opens the space as a garden for Australians to stroll through and photograph. And he sells his fruit, which includes several rare species that aren't native to Australia and can't be purchased in the grocery store. Ooh. As for the record-breaking tree, it features white nectarines, yellow nectarines, white peaches, yellow peaches, apricots, peach cots, almonds, cherries, red plums, and gold plums. And obviously some oh. of those are very similar, to the point that Guinness said they don't all count as separate species. So Seraf's <gasps> record is actually only for five different fruits. And that meant he was initially tied with the existing record holder, Luis H. Carrasco of Chile, who held the record for two decades. But after they reduced Seraf's count to five, he pointed out, well, Carrasco's list of fruits contains both nectarines and peaches. And if they weren't going to count his <laughs> as separate, they shouldn't count Carrasco's as a separate. So
2: Carrasco was reduced to four and Seraf was given the title. <laughs> There's an easy way to become the winner here. You just keep on grafting. That's right. That's right. Just put some
0: more on there, you know? Yeah. Well, and Saraf isn't stopping there. He's also filed applications with Guinness for the most variety of stone fruits on one tree, as well as the tree with the most apple varieties. But those are mostly a question of paperwork, since he's already grown the trees. The real record Mm -hmm. that he wants to win next is for the biggest simultaneous gardening lesson. The record Whoa. currently stands at 286 people and is held by HGTV Arabia in Kuwait. Siraf wow. is hoping to have at least a thousand attendees at his mass gardening lesson, which he doesn't have a firm date for, but he's hoping. And, you know, depending on how big his school is, he might be able to get it with just one mandatory pep rally. You know, put everybody <laughs> in the gym and say, "Pay attention!" And all of a sudden, you've ha- you've had a gardening lesson. <laughs> but yeah, they've got some pictures of the tree. It doesn't look. As cool as you would think, like it mostly just looks like a little sapling and you can maybe see one or two fruits on it because they bloom at different times of the year. So seasonally,
2: it's sort of Mm. always producing fruit, but never the same fruit at the same time. That sounds like such a dream thing to have in the yard than also like a 24-7 battle with wildlife over the fruit. Yeah. Well, I
0: think he spends a lot of time out in his back garden making sure these plants stay alive, you know?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next week. link. all right. You're not going to believe it, but a theme has emerged, Uh-oh. y'all. Smithsonian Magazine has, at 17 pounds, Doug the Ugly Potato could be the world's biggest spud. It's huh. named Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay.
0: Oh my gosh. Oh, I'm going to try oh, to keep a It's a pun. <laughs> I just got it. I'm sorry. <laughs> like okay you can name it
2: gary you can name it anything i guess but he, he dug the potato i get it now okay i'm with uh, you well d-o-u-g is in quotes and there's a little bit of a story behind yes this craziness so the reason i was reluctant to include this is because it's really dependent on a picture and the picture is of a 17 pound potato that could earn the top spot in the guinness book of world records talking about that theme but it looks like some kind of Clive Barker mastermind <laughs> had cursed an infant to grow and develop under the ground <laughs> in the, a fetal position. Like I, and then there's just like a, a vegetable peeler laid on top of it <laughs> on the kitchen sink. I highly recommend you check it out. But it's the way this story, again, from the Smithsonian Magazine, tagged under smart news that, okay, here we go. <clears throat> Colin and Donna Craig Brown were weeding their garden near Hamilton, New Zealand when they found something unusual beneath the soil surface. And when Colin tasted a piece, he realized it was a giant potato. Quote, we couldn't believe it. It was just huge. Now, their unusual discovery may be the largest potato on record. When weighed at the local farming store, the spud was about 17.4 pounds, which is the size of a large Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah, wow. They named the potato Doug after the way it was unearthed. Way to go, Jennifer. Uh, yeah, it took me we- a minute. <laughs> <laughs> The Guinness World Records entry for the heaviest potato is a 2011 tater from Britain that clocked in at just under 11 pounds. So this is uh, blowing it out of the water. And they've already applied to Guinness to have Doug officially recognized. (laughs) And they're waiting to hear back, which can take a few months. They don't know how the tuber got there. Colin says they planted potatoes in that area two or three years ago. But in recent years, they've grown cucumbers in that section of the garden. They do fertilize regularly with manure and straw, but don't do anything extreme, so they have no idea how it got that big. It's likely the potato was simply lost over the years and left in the ground, continued to grow to its unprecedented girth. Quote, It's fair to say our veggie garden can sometimes get a bit feral. There are some parts of the garden you need to pack a lunch and advise your next of kin before heading into, (laughs) Colin said. (laughs) Since they discovered the potato on August 30th, Doug has reached celebrity status Mm -hmm. among locals. Quote, we put a hat on him, put him on Facebook, (laughs) taking him for a walk giving him some sunshine. He <laughs> built a small cart to tow Doug around, but all that fresh air and adventure has proved taxing for Doug. Over time, he began shriveling. Oh, well, and yeah. Little, little. He's an old potato. <laughs> <And> then, they <laughs> rot. Like <you> can't. <laughs> Soon, yes, soon Doug had an odor. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm keeping it together. So the couple made the difficult choice, put him in plastic, put him in the freezer, and next Colin hopes to give Doug a second life, as a delicious potato vodka. Oh my God.
0: I I like this guy. He
2: sounds fun.
0: He put a hat on a potato. That's cute. But also he's the kind of guy who hit something unknown underground and said, I'm going to taste a bite of that. <laughs> See what it is. Like,
2: that's bold. That's a choice you make in life. Everything about this article, from the choice to pitch, write, and publish. Right, right. (laughs) This is like the chef's kiss of weird and damn interesting. I highly recommend you give it a read and out loud to someone who has not yet experienced the joy of this insanity.
0: (laughs) That's right. If I'd been able to see the quotes around Doug, maybe I would have gotten it faster.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Next link. Next link. Next link.
1: This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com. It's titled, I Wanted Less Than a Minute, 105-Year-Old Unsatisfied After 100-Meter World Record. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. So, like all elite athletes, Julia Hurricane Hawkins has a ruthless streak. (laughs) Despite setting a 100-meter world record on Sunday at the Louisiana Senior Games, she still wants to go faster. It was wonderful to see so many family members and friends, but I wanted to do it in less than a minute. The 105-year-old said after the race where she recorded a time of 1 minute and 2.95 seconds, a record for women in the 105-plus age category. Wow! When someone pointed out that 102 is less than her age and asked if that made her feel better, Hawkins answered, no. <laughs> oh, I like her. <laughs> yeah. Me too. <laughs> the retired teacher is no stranger to athletic excellence. She started competing in the National Senior Games when she was 80, specializing in cycling time trials, and won several gold medals. She eventually ended her cycling career, saying, There wasn't anyone left my age to compete with. When she turned 100, she took up sprinting. In 2017, she set the 100-meter world record for women over the age of 100 with a time of 39.62 seconds. When her record was broken in September by Diane Friedman, Hawkins decided to compete in a new age category. I love to run, and I love being an inspiration to others, Hawkins said. My message to others is that you have to stay active if you want to be healthy and happy as you age. Several age records for the 100 meter have tumbled this year. In August, Hiro Tanaka of Japan blazed home in 16.69 seconds to set the male record in the 90 and over category. In women's competition, Australia's Julie Brims broke the 55-plus record in a time of 12.24 seconds, while American Kathleen Bergen crossed the line in 16.26 seconds in the 80 and over category. Bergen has also broken age records in the high jump at 60 meters and 200 meters.
0: What? No. That's too high. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's not... Sa- like, somebody should have talked her out of that. That's crazy. <laughs> well i mean when somebody turns 100 and they say they want to begin that's true sprinting i mean they're honestly like you know what at this point it might be just like if she does get hurt it'll be quick it'll be she'll go out in a blaze of glory like (laughs) (laughs) i'm more meant to like give people the space to complete their bucket sure yeah that too i'm just (laughs) because somebody's gonna get hurt at some point surely well i'm sure some of them are doctors and i understand (laughs) they stick to some kind of code
1: Yeah, I mean, so long as they're attending and their back is turned, right, right. it doesn't matter. They didn't
2: watch there the lady know. jump 60 meters. They just, yeah. Yeah. Someone wrote it somewhere. I'm sure there's the page on the Internet that has the rules.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: All
0: right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. Before we go, we have a little exciting news. This week marks the two-year anniversary of our podcast, which Woo-hoo! is very exciting. And it is also very nearly our 100th episode. Today's episode is actually number 99, and we will be off next week for Thanksgiving, so you can expect that 100th episode to drop on December 3rd. And we've also put together some bonus-themed episodes to thank you all for being loyal listeners and helping us grow over the past two years by telling your friends about our show. We really love doing it, and we hope you love listening to it. So our first bonus episode is called Criminals Who Are Bad at Their Jobs, and you can look for it to drop at the same time as our next regular episode on the 3rd, We do have a lot more of these lined up, and we're looking forward to sharing them with you in the coming months and hopefully years. You know, let's keep this party going. As always, there are many more articles on damninteresting.com that we did not have time to get to. Some of those articles include The Year America's Hair Fell Out, Why the Rockfish Can Live for Centuries and You Can't, and The Most Dangerous Woman in San Francisco. So thank you guys again. It's been a pleasure. We hope to keep it up for a long time to come. As always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash damn interesting week. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.